status quo is a comfort zone and politics requires uh, stability. So when you're confronted with choices, the outcomes or the consequences of which are not clear, politicians tend to choose status quo. Uh, the classic thing about India was, uh, is that it knew what needed to be done. Perhaps also there was enough documentation on how it needed to be done, but who was going to do it? Who had the courage? So Narasimha Rao had the uh, courage because he had virtually no downside. Uh, he could have uh, chosen to be just another prime minister, but he decided to be a different prime minister. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Today we're going to be talking about India's economy and how it undertook serious reforms that ended the license Raj, why growth has stalled in recent years and the path ahead given COVID and its impact. To talk about this, I have the honor of hosting Shankar Iyer. Shankar Iyer is a political economy analyst, columnist, and the author of several books, including Accidental India, a history of the nation's passage through crisis and change, which I would say is a must read for anyone who wants to fully understand what it took for India to push through transformative structural reforms. Shankar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Zaya. Pleasure to be here. So you wrote a book on India's reforms and actually got the fascinating scoop about the country putting up its gold as collateral to avert a balance of payments crisis. And until 1991, uh, when I read your book, I realized that India was a low growth economy that had not delivered meaningful progress and had been going from one crisis to another, but not much had changed until 1991. Um, I want you to tell us a bit about what led to the crisis of 1991 and why was it that Prime Minister Rao's government facing the most serious economic crisis of the country since independence, how was it able to push through these reforms that ultimately led India to becoming uh, one of the largest economies in the world? So in a very uh, common man sense, I would tell you, I, would, I could say that the crisis was uh, India in the 80s opened up certain sectors of its economy for imports. And uh, it also expanded its expenditure. So it had both pressure on the current account and on the fiscal deficit. Uh, so we were borrowing, uh, I mean, in rupees, spending uh, on you know, uh, capacity upgradation on imports and stuff like that because some, some sectors like electronics and others had been opened up. But the gist of it was that you were borrowing in rupees and spending in dollars and um, that sort of can be sustained for a brief while but in the run-up to the gulf war when crude prices went up shot through the roof and there was pressure on uh, current account i think india found itself in a situation where it had reserves to last just two weeks of imports and it is not that this was not known as early as 1988. Uh, you know, Michelle Kamidas, who was chief of IMF, had come to India and had met the finance minister, the prime minister and the finance secretary, and had sort of told them that you might want to come to the IMF to get a bridge loan in place just in case things go wrong or if you're unable to manage things. 
in 88, Rajiv Gandhi's government was under attack on corruption, on various issues, and it was heading for an election. So no government which, which is heading for an election is going to sort of tell the people that, you know, I'm going to go and borrow money from IMF. So that would be suicidal. So he didn't do uh, I think Pakistan saw that in 2018. So a lot of the listeners in Pakistan are very familiar with what you're saying about elections and going to the IMF. And uh, so in 1989, Rajiv Gandhi's erstwhile colleague, VP Singh, uh, went into the opposition and cobbled a coalition and came to power. His first statement was, the coffers are empty. And then he went on to announce the largest ever loan waiver to farmers. So by end of December, when the Congress sort of uh, put up Chandrasekhar as the prime minister in 1990, November, uh, much of the knowledgeable world knew that India was heading into trouble, but you know nobody knew the exact magnitude of it. And uh, I happened to sort of uh, be following this issue on on a day-to-day basis, and uh, I got a tip-off, and I went and uh, went to the airport in Bombay, as it was known then, Mumbai, and. Uh, found strange things happening there, which was basically RBI was shifting 40 tons of gold in four different tranches uh, via the Swiss uh, route to the Bank of England for a $400 million loan. And when you look back 30 years, it doesn't seem to be a big amount today, 400 million, but the photograph of the aircraft and the gold and the trunks and the you know, eight column headline sort of brought home to the people the, the major crisis that was uh, sort of hitting India and, you know, the politics around it started unraveling and people started asking questions, you know. But the bailout itself, actually, uh, India went to the IMF in January and it was a very interesting uh, story. It's a very interesting story. You know, in the IMF, of course, you need U.S. support to get anything through. And uh, so India had difficulty then because uh, the previous government had sort of praised Saddam Hussein. Uh, so that was not very helpful. And so not a great thing, not not a great thing to do, especially at that point in time. Yeah. So Chandrasekhar asked Subramanian Swami, who is a Harvard trained economist and uh, who a lot of people in India uh, find enigmatic. He's a master of intrigue, but he has network of connections. So Chandrasekhar asked him to speak to the U.S. government. So he spoke to the U.S. State Department and the U.S. State Department at that time wanted a refueling stop for its aircraft for the, for the war uh, in the Gulf. And so Subhanam Swami asked them, what will you, what does India get if I allow you to refuel? So they said, oh, we'll give you extra charges, that and all. And Swami just laughed at their face and said that we have a proposal in the IMF, back us on the proposal and we will think about it. So that's how that uh, bailout came. 
So the IMF bailout was agreed in the first week of January, and the government of Chandrasekhar fell in March. So the government had to wait all the way till May to make good on its promises made to the IMF. And the promises were there were 26 conditions the IMF imposed. And this is the thing that hurts politics in South Asia or elsewhere or even in Latin America when countries go and borrow. Uh, obviously, the guy who pays the bugler calls the tune. So they put impose those conditions. And part of those conditions were uh, to get public sector out of business, delicensing, opening up the market and everything. And the amazing thing, as you said, that India was always, a, a, for a long period time in 70s, uh, a low-growth economy, well below its potential, well below its ability. And one of the reasons was it was a closed economy. So the government thought it knew who should produce what, at how much, and it would be sold at what price, you know, the, the whole uh, Soviet-style uh, economic. And so in the late 80s, and actually in 89 or 90, Amarnath Verma and Dr. Rakesh Mohan, who was in IMF and who's a well-known economist in India, they came out with a draft for a new industrial policy. But because the VP Singh government was supported on the left on one side and the right on one side, so that is there was nationalism on the right and Marxism on the left, there was no way that idea could even get tabled in parliament which so is also January, a very interesting coalition right like both yeah. the left and the right coming together to yeah, prop, yeah. prop up a prime minister and it was it came together only because they wanted to keep the congress out of power so uh, and for justifiable reasons because the congress government in the, had been in the middle of several scandals and so this paper, which was discarded in June 1990, was presented as the promissory note in January 1991 to the IMF, that we have already doing this stuff. And so that's how sort of the, uh, and that was the first document that was given to Prime Minister Narsimha Rao on the night he was chosen as the presumptive Prime Minister, a day before he took oath. And it was given to him by the then cabinet secretary, Naresh Chandra. And it was a, it's an interesting story how Narsimha Rao then found that he needed to have a person with a face known in the IMF. So he approached I.G. Patel, who used to be Reserve Bank governor and was very well known in uh, global financial and economic circles, to be the finance minister. He declined and he suggested the name of uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh to P.C. Alexander, who was an interlocutor. Uh, and so Dr. Manmohan Singh, was, who had just come back from Japan, was roused from his sleep and said, told, okay, get ready, we're going to swear you in. And that's how he became the finance minister. And much of what happened in 91 was a combination of the promises that uh, India made to IMF, some of the uh, elements that were there in the Rakesh Mohan Amanat Verma paper, and uh, those got implemented. Uh, it unleashed the un entrepreneurial spirit of India. Then you opened up sector. So barring aviation, 
and consumer electronics, almost everything was open. And so the potential of India's demography, even now we speak about it, was uh, visible even then. So uh, those who knew their demographies, science, knew that India was heading towards a sweet spot in terms of consumption, demand, and output. And so uh, a lot of investments came through, uh, a lot of uh, opening up in trade. Uh, the rupee was first made partially convertible and then fully convertible. The important political lesson, I mean, how, what distinguishes India from Latin America or its South Asian neighbors or everybody else is there has been no reform in India which has been rolled back regardless of the regime that follows. So there is a sense of purpose there, which has prevailed. And probably that has got a lot to do with uh, people who were there during the time of crisis, who, who, who survived different regimes. Uh, the way the rupee was managed, uh, the way, uh, the, way uh, the external accounts were managed. And it also, uh, sort of rode on the baby boomer boom in the U.S. You see, the 90s were sort of the pickup point for the boomers to sort of push demand. And uh, India made good on uh, its potential and sort of strode ahead. Uh, there were many political wrangles. Uh, the... The proposal to de-license or dismantle the license raj was rejected twice in the cabinet. And it had to be reconfigured and presented as a continuum of an idea that Nehru and Indira Gandhi had set to do. And, and that was one of the fascinating things, and, and sorry to interrupt you here, but mm -hmm. I wanted to dive a bit deep into that because you write about this in the book as well, that India needs a crisis or... To, to push through meaningful, impactful structural reforms. And 91 was sort of one of the biggest crises the country faced. But what is it, why is it that the country needs a crisis? What is it about the political economy that requires that? And also in that same vein, why is it, I, I know that people remained in, in, in different crises so that continuous policies moved on, whether the government changed or not. But is there anything beyond that that means, you know, I remember, for example, Prime Minister Modi, before he became Prime Minister, the BJP was opposed to liberalizing retail. Most recently, that's what I remember. But when he came to power, they liberalized retail, right? And so I wanted to talk about these two things. One, why is it that it needs a crisis to push through substantive reforms? And two, what is so unique about the system that when a government changes, those in opposition, when they come to power, they may be opposing a set of policies where actually decide that, hey, it's actually better to continue down this road that my political opponents went down initially. So, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, status quo is Latin for the mess we are in. Uh, but essentially, status quo is a comfort zone. You're very comfortable in it because you think that things will pass away. And as in South Asia, we say, we sort of carve our own logic to these things. But status quo is a comfort zone and politics requires uh, stability. So when 
you're confronted with choices, the outcomes or the consequences of which are not clear, politicians tend to choose status quo. Uh, the classic thing about India was, uh, is that it knew what ne needed to be done. It perhaps also, there was enough documentation on how it needed to be done, but who was going to do it? Who had the courage? So Narasimha Rao had the uh, courage because he had virtually no downside. Uh, he could have uh, chosen to be just another prime minister, but he decided to be a different prime minister. And uh, he pushed it through. The thing about, uh, so Newton's law, you know, you know unless uh, the body stays in uh, the same place, unless uh, for external force acts upon it. The beauty about crisis in a political economy, particularly in democracies, is that the force of change depends on the magnitude of the crisis. So once the crisis abates, politicians lose the fear which drives the change. What happens in a crisis? The luxury of choice is wrenched away. You have to act. And so India has acted on, uh, so the book, Accidental India, looks at the transformation of India through a series of crises. You know, how we did green revolution, how we did bank nationalization, how we democratized capital, the software revolution, the milk revolution, and so on and so forth. And there are also crises which are silent, which do not have a political consequence, or at least till now. My most re recent book, which got released in June, The Gated Republic, is on India's public policy failures and private solutions. It looks at the five basic elements that Adam Smith speaks about, the five most basic moral obligations of any government, water, infrastructure, education, health, security. And in all these uh, areas, Governance has been less than uh, subpar. Some places it's really poor. And it, it's a silent crisis. And despite the presence of the crisis, very little was done. If you look around the world, public health, universal health care, is being proved. It has been proved. People know that it works, that it delivers economic uh, benefits, uh, that it makes societies less corrupt. Uh, if you look at all those countries which have public health care, they rank better on uh, the transparency in uh, national index. If you look at countries which have public education system, they rank better in human capital and growth. So this is known, but who will it? So a former uh, head of uh, the European Union used to say that we all know what is to be done, but we don't know how to get elected after it's done or how to get re-elected. And therein lies the pinch. So uh, the, the, the challenge uh, is political in a democracy. The challenge is much more of communication. It's how do you sell? Now, if you look back, the Emancipation Bill in the US, the abolition of slavery, wasn't a 
clearly articulated goal beyond the uh, what is a 32 word speech of abraham lincoln but uh, it was purged and then evangelized and brought together so i think one of the things over a period of time the way democracies have evolved is that it has sort of impacted the quality of people who come into politics and it has impacted therefore the kind of communication that is required to lay a path for change people have to be told this needs to be done and we got to do this otherwise you know you you have to show that uh, there's a storm coming and this is what we need to do and people are i think conscious of it they're sensitive to these things are willing but uh, it's a matter of trust and if you keep spinning all the time theories so people lose trust in regimes and which is where we are i mean you know you look at uh, what's happening on covid around the world i mean people like trump and bolsonaro and others have been spinning stories on how Uh, there is no virus and that the virus will go away and stuff like that and so people lose trust even if they tell, speak the truth the next day nobody sort of buying the truth i think the critical uh, issue i mean whether you are in private sector whether you are an individual or an institution crisis is an opportunity for change because it makes you introspect and think about how you would want to do certain things you can never revisit a decision because every decision is taken in a particular context so uh, if when leaders come to understand that that in this context this decision was taken and they are able to explain and the people understand i think it will be much easier to foster change but this is engagement how how do democracies engage now the, uh, so we from the roman uh, city uh, system of governments to uh to the representative democracy we have sort of scaled up uh, uh the idea of liberty and freedom and equality and all but how do you communicate i mean uh whether it's in india whether it's in us whether it's in germany uh elected representatives tend to sort of represent the party more than they represent the people uh and and that's one of the flaws of uh, representative democracy so how do you bridge that you 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 can bring uh, into play several other forums which is what private sector has done you know because they also have hierarchical hierarchical systems so they bring in mentors coaches bridge sessions updating skilling all kinds of instruments are used to sort of communicate uh, i mean the town hall in all these tech companies serve a great purpose in the in, in enabling that communication if you look at the town hall what does it do for a satya nadella or a zuckerberg or a sundar pichai it allows people to air their fears and anxieties and allows him to give a pathway now which is what democracies require you know you require a pathway of engagement i think this probably might be the next society might sort of look at it but uh, yes crisis uh, i i call crisis a feel good factor you know you can expect change so on that note so if if we fast forward from 1991 to today and maybe go a few years back um india's economy sees growth slow 
you have a major election in 2014 where Prime Minister Modi comes to power, in large part promising reforms and achedin and high growth, etc. Um, but there is still a silent crisis even before COVID, right? Youth unemployment grew, um, there's an agrarian crisis, etc. Do you think that, again, the crisis of that has been there in India even before COVID is a silent crisis and that's why we haven't seen uh, major reforms or what is the reason now for a government that is such mo- so masterful at communicating and engaging, for example, to not be bold enough in, in pushing the country forward? Or is, am I wrong in even saying that it has not been bold enough? I would love your thoughts on what's happened to the economy in the last two years. So, uh, so let's step back a bit. Uh, so, my, the epilogue of my book, Accidental India, actually listed these crises uh, in water, in agriculture, in deprivation, in poverty, in national security. All of these are there. Uh, so, if you look at structurally, India is a quasi federal system. So, there is the center and then there is the states. What got done in 1991 was the glass ceiling was sort of taken off. So sectors were opened up and continuously over a period of 20 years, I think many sectors were open. I mean, you know, pretty much most of the sectors in India are open now. But what government after government could not do is to free, liberate the factors of productivity and liberate the structure of governance. So it would continue to be centralized. And the factors of productivity are controlled by the state governments. So sometime in 2015 or 16 at a conference in Singapore, I mentioned this. One of the interesting things of 2014, uh, a day after or the day Mr. Modi took uh, charge as prime minister, India's top manufacturer of its famous old car called the Ambassador, which was an old Morris uh, model. And the Ambassador sort of represented everything that the government was. Inefficient, badly designed, slow, uh, costly, uh, a retarder, everything. So when people voted for Mr. Narendra Modi, the expectation was that Dr. Manmohan Singh was not quite the Schumacher or the Elon or uh, uh, Hamilton, if I remember. Lewis Hamilton. New, Lewis Hamilton. So let's get a Schumacher or a Lewis Hamilton to run this show. But the problem is Lewis Hamilton or Schumacher, Mr. Modi is still driving the same ambassador. The system of governance hasn't quite changed. So what has happened is that he's made it a little more efficient. You know, we have sort of jumped many places in ease of doing business. He has communicated ideas in terms of startup India, make in India, uh, Swachh Bharat, cleanliness and stuff. But it's not enough to communicate. Your ideas have to sort of take root in the systems of governance. So the Indian policy framework for most elements, whether it is economic policy, education policy, health policy, is all located in the concurrent list. So the center, which is union government, 
devises, designs a national policy. The states, 30 states, have little or no say in the design of the policy. The implementation is left to the state governments. And the center or the union government can do very little if the states implement it or don't implement it. So there is a bipolar disorder, I call it. And uh, there's a divorce of what my favorite line on this is that there is a divorce of authority and accountability. And so things don't get done. So yes, is a masterful communicator. His party has been in power in almost 20 states at one time. But it is, you know, status quo is also a parking spot, a sort of parking plaza for rent. So if you have systems which have so many clearances, if you have labor laws which are spread across 45 different acts, if land acquisition justifiably has issues of payment on compensation, so who's good? So whenever you see wherever in the world, if changes happen, it has been championed, whether it is FDR's New Deal, whether it's Lyndon Johnson's Great New Society, whether it is the telecom revolution in India, the mobile revolution, whether it is the art inception. Uh, I wrote a book on Aadhaar, India's biometric identity system, which is the world's largest biometric identity system. And it was set up by the Congress government, opposed tooth and nail by the BJP. They said they will sink it. When they came to power, they expanded its use. In fact, demonetization was the biggest driver of Aadhaar use through digital payments, one would say. Yeah, so, so digitization took off in what I call the play of unintended consequences of policy. So, and if you look at all these, every, every change has been driven by a champion. So change can't happen without it. We all like to say that institutions matter, but the individuals in those institutions seem to matter much more because you, you, you have the character of the individual sort of seeping through the institution. So India does a great job in putting together some projects that uh, it, had a mar it put together its mass mission with the most difficult maneuver, the slingshot. And it cost India less than it cost Hollywood to produce gravity. And that's frugal economics for you. We, we conduct elections with 900 million voters. I mean, it's mind boggling. I mean, you know how it's managed. Uh, the Kummela, and we, we do a lot of things very well. But I think the, India or any other government comes together on our events in episodes better than in continuum. So what, what, what requires to be done in a continuum is always a, a question that has to be updated, answered, you know. It's kind of like the app world. You've got to sort of choose the Android path rather than the iOS path because you must allow other people to come and sort of devise apps and, you know, crowdsource ideas and stuff so that, uh, you know, you can then, you know, sort of 
accelerate one idea or the other. Uh, I, I think a lot more thinking is required in the system of governance more than anything else. The last four or five years slowdown has been a cause for concern. There's been high unemployment. Uh, there have been issues with the data. Uh, and without going into any of this, I mean, you know, there is a feel good factor when you're doing well, and there is a feel bad factor when you're doing badly. And uh, so the feel bad factor was pretty apparent uh, all the way from 2016, 2017. Uh, and the, the issue there really is that the state governments have simply not pulled their weight. And that's, that's where, so I've written about this and I've said that, you know, you need to decentralize uh, governance. And what we have in fact is uh, the goods and services tax, which is a one nation, one tax system is very good. And, very marketable, very saleable, but it leaves very little room for the state governments to sort of raise resources to do the things that they want to do. And uh, I hope the new finance commission, which is working on the next uh, report, sort of gives that kind of flexibility. To... So there is the form of governance, which is, you know, you've got to bring people and ideas together. Then there is the funds for governance. Then there's the functionaries for the governance. All of these need to be sort of liberated if India sort of move, has to move from. Uh, the, the good thing is that there's general consensus within the system that you know these things need to be done. But you, you still need to find a champion who will sort of put up a new labor code. I mean, this is what they are thinking of is still archaic and antiquated. You know, the world is moved into gig economy, shared economy. Uh, people want. Uh, contracts for hours in a week or hours in a month or days in a week. Uh, Part-time is not necessarily a currency. I mean, you know, in, in the current dictionary, people just say uh, we are a seasonal contractor, we are a consultant. Or, so these kind of elements have come through and this is where the economy is headed now. And so the, these are the things that need to be done. I mean, you look at the world now, there is, a, there is one part of the world which is aging, which needs people, but they are, uh, but technology is enabling retrenchment of human interface, whether it's in banking. I mean, look at finance. I mean, you know, it's, it's completely, I mean, you know, I, I, I dare say that after a few years, they may not be banks as we know. Yeah, no, totally. And, and it's, it's one of those things I had, um, Jamie Arbib on my podcast a few weeks ago, he wrote this book called Rethinking Humanity, mm -hmm. um, which looks at sort of the coming revolution. He says they call it an age of abundance in the book. And it's all about automation, right? It's about nanotechnology, it's about AI, it's about electric vehicles and all the shifts that will happen. And the idea being that in the next 10 years or so, you will have these transformative changes, which will make the old way of doing business redundant. Um, and so my question to them was that, you know, developing economies, emerging economies are trying to follow the China model or the Vietnam model, which is be the exporter of the world. But if you're telling me that automation will mean that the shoe factory in Vietnam is no longer required because someone sitting in Idaho can have a 3D printer and make shoes from their home in their garage, um, then what's the path for development for emerging economies, right? And 
that was one of the things that was fascinating was from his perspective was, well, you got to invest in institutional shifts, invest in technologies and human capital for the next age, not for the previous age. I.e., so, if you're still building high-speed trains, it's probably not the right investment for you to make because autonomous vehicles will make a high-speed train redundant for you. I don't know. There's a, you know, for years together, we've been saying urbanization is a great force multiplier in economic growth. So I don't know whether after work from home, whether there will be urbanization in that uh, same spot on the radar as always. I mean, absolutely. You know, uh, with the mass rapid transport systems, will have the same weightage. You know, uh, I know for a fact that pension funds are not looking at metros and mass transport systems as as uh, alluring as it was earlier. If you, I mean, you know, Ricardo's theory of comparative advantages has to be reinterpreted uh, for the new world. Um, if the developed economies, which I call the paved economies, uh, are going to re retrench human interface. In, uh, you spoke about uh, sports shoes, but uh, I think a faster pathway will be laid out for pharmaceuticals. Yep. Uh, you know, the, all the ideas in the small clinics will have a machine there. You go and plug in your prescription and, you know, it, you might probably get it home delivered or whatever. Uh, you know, the low-skilled jobs, I mean, first we thought that it's the high-skilled jobs which are getting robotized. But it's the low-skilled jobs which are the threat, the job of a driver, the truck driver, automated driving is going to change, 3D printing. I mean, the, so... The idea of uh, another China or a Vietnam is kind of now uh, in the past, I would say, because there is only so much consumption the world will take. There is no new baby boomer era. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And so who's going to consume all the stuff? And you can't have another China in the world. There's going to be different. So I think that what might happen in, in, in the wake of climate, which is the third factor, in which I call the triad of factors, demography, climate, and uh, technology. Uh, I think uh, the third factor will sort of play out, uh, will accelerate both the factors, uh, demography and technology. So you hear now in over the last two months that bailouts should be linked to green policies. Yeah. So governments are talking about airlines using greener routes, greener aircraft. <clears throat> There's a company in Japan which is testing uh, hydrogen power for ships. Uh, There's uh, a, a new uh, technology being developed, uh, which is called the light digital tattoos on bodies. Uh, for treating diabetics or cholesterol patients. So this takes away the entire advantage of generic drugs as we knew. So the whole export potential of China or India in APIs or generic is challenged. You look at uh, how cloud-based services may threaten information technology companies elsewhere. Uh, so do you need a certain service at all? And do you need a certain product at all? If I'm going to be sitting at home and doing most of my work as work from home and only my upper body is going to say, this is much likely, uh, I mean, this would be an interesting study to uh, are people buying less trousers. 
Well, so that I was going to say that I was reading the Washington <laughs> Post last week and demand for jeans has collapsed because yeah. people have realized that they would rather wear shorts and more comfortable lower wear because even when they're working from home, they don't need to wear jeans or chinos or pants um, anymore. So the demand has collapsed and people, a couple of fashion designers quoted in that article in the post were basically saying that we don't see them coming back anytime soon because people have realized that jeans and trousers were basically a prison around them. I mean, look at look at the face-to-face -face economy. Uh, I mean, I, I really feel I feel bad for the Michelin uh, chefs and those restaurants. I mean, you know, even if they charge uh, and made people pay through their nose for just a little bit of food, but uh, what are, what's going to happen to the face-to-face -face economy? Uh, yeah. uh, you, you know, um, so there's this theory uh, if if you continue to perform below your potential, you bring down your potential. And those who are unemployed become unemployable. Yeah. This is the quandary that, this is the conundrum that has to be addressed in the next few uh, months. I, I, it's, it's a fascinating time, and it's also a very frightening time uh, for younger people. Uh, yeah. What kind of future are they sort of uh, looking at? So, so I wanna, I, I wanna sort of sh sh use that same way, you know, use that thought of yours to talk about a bit whether it's India or other emerging economies. Like, obviously, COVID is an accelerant, and it has disrupted, fundamentally altered what how people's society behaves in the developed and the developing world. And it has accelerated changes, right? Whether it's demography, technology, or everything else. So how do you see, and I'll go back to where we started this discussion, which is India needs a crisis or a crisis and opportunity to act. And so do you, one, see COVID-19 and its economic and societal repercussions as an opportunity for India to act or other countries? And B, um, what are the shifts that you see coming out of this that maybe lead to the end of this low growth period that India has witnessed over the last few years? So I, I, I think that, uh, yes, India, there is a huge opportunity and there is an upside uh, in this crisis for it. Uh, and it's an, there's an upside for all emerging economies. Uh, and the question is, how do you look at it? How, how are you going to examine that? Uh, so essentially, it comes boils down to how you reallocate human capital across the economy. Uh, so, think of education. You could sort of, if you have online education, you can upgrade the education across the average. And so your human, human capital is better qualified. Telemedicine allows you to deliver treatment and expertise on the fiber optics across domains, across geographies. Climate change makes you rethink how you will use energy. We haven't actually reached that spot as to why so much energy is being wasted. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by all the youngsters who are carrying placards and shouting about climate change and all. And I just want them to think how many pairs of sneakers they're buying every year. Is that climate friendly? 
those are issues yeah, fa- that fast fashion and its climate impact is, yeah. is huge so so if if technology is harnessed by the developing economies to create uh uh opportunities now a lot many of the governance uh structures in the west will not change i dare say human interface will continue to be there so how do you serve that human interface here's an opportunity for emerging economies to take over those you did medical transcription you did call centers i'm sure you could do many of the governmental functions so there's an opportunity there you could save capital by reimagining how you do uh, how you get your output so one of the things is that emerging economies tend to import a lot of negatives so let's take whether it's pakistan afghanistan india china whoever i mean india and china two of the biggest economies are net importers of crude oil one of the biggest users of uh, hydro uh, fossil fuels they if they reimagine their structures if they go heavily into renewables which is happening by the way uh in terms uh, do 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 you see a, a saving of capital reduction of carbon footprint uh so you look at fertilizer manufacture across the world for instance it's capital intensive so we import capital equipment it's energy intensive so you import energy it's raw material intensive and almost everybody is importing phosphate either from canada or from morocco yeah and then putting up fertilizer plants across the world so you're adding to your costs and adding to the carbon footprint so if you rethink about this do you really need those kind of fertilizers i mean if what if technology comes up with just in time uh nutrients of them so here's what i think uh is the process where again it depends on what's the institutional blue sky thinking capacity in countries hmm. so in, germany in, in, embarked on uh renewables probably about 10 12 years back us under obama incentivized uh technology green technology I and mean, not many people know tesla was one of the early yeah. recipients of the uh, green fund and they were about to default on the bonds and elon musk had to put money together otherwise the us government would have had a stake in tesla yeah and it would have been a good very good very yeah. <laughs> very good, excellent investment say. yes <clears throat> so if if you look if you look at that if you look at that uh if you look at what's the global digital economy all about it's about the internet and it's about gps both were developed by government of us darpa and others okay so they innovated on it they built platforms and it all good credit for them now that 
business model rests on ownership of data or rather on data being held hostage by big tech what if the world decides to make data a public good yeah and that's and the biggest threat right it, 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 it is the biggest threat is there it is going to happen it, every country is going to coral data in their domain now how this will happen what's the technology that will what will be the sluice gates we don't know how it's going to come to but i imagine that there will be a time and some people in india nandan nilakani's team and others have worked on it so it's called the data fiduciary system that yeah. needs to use certain digital uh, apps and implements and he has to be on the uh, internet so he goes through a data fiduciary and he says my data can be used by so and so for these these purposes and not anymore yeah and it, again we have and to be creative you, right be, because yeah. on that system like I, i go back to my conversation with jamie because he brought this up as well he was like look if you look at the joint stock company it is basically a remnant or a creation of the age of extraction where industrialized states had to marshal large amount of resources through multinational corporation and so the joint stock company was born and it is there today but today's big tech companies maybe need to be reimagined not as joint stock companies but something else information companies or however you want to structure them but their roles and responsibilities must go beyond the shareholder itself because they hold a lot more power than just the power of their product right now and yeah and and i was listening to the hearings in the house of congress and the questions that were uh, i mean sadly some of the stuff was pure showboating but uh, the, the the real issue there is not just the dominance of the power that they hold but the disproportionate return that that power gives them so instead of trying to control the power if you if you correlate the returns and what gives the returns is how they imagine if all the governments got together i mean thought of this data warehousing in their own domain and on data that is used by the big tech whoever is using it a part of the revenue comes as gst Yeah. I mean, it's a service tax. So, because the entire business model rests on that, and the, this is the way I think uh, a lot of this will go through. I also uh, think climate will rethink the taxation system in the world, not in the very yeah okay. So, carbon tax is very fashionable and stuff like that, but I think a more profound change will happen. and that profound change will sort of bring this down to the individual level and that could be that how much carbon is shankarayar or uzair using what's your carbon footprint how much conservation do you could arrive at this contextually and be paid back or get uh, rebates on how you use energy how you change the 
uh, I haven't used, I haven't owned a car for 10 years. Hmm. It's just a principal thing. Is that I find that, you know, if I need to get to place one A to B, I'm able to get a transport and I do that. And I'm trying to sort of see whether it works and how long this works. It hasn't been too bad. Uh, so if a carbon footprint product producing automobile is shared, the footprint is that much less. We all know carpooling and stuff. Yeah. Now, now think about an automotive electric vehicle, autonomous electric vehicle. Uzair buys an autonomous vehicle. He reaches office in DC and puts it back in the road as an Uber. And he, he programs it that it comes back to him at 4 p.m. to pick him up go home, go for dinner, or go back into the road. Yeah. So you have allowed for capacity expansion without green, uh, without carboning the thing. Because the production of the automobile itself is also an issue of carbon footprint. So climate, I mean, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, so I'm in Canada just now, so I'm, I find it very fascinating. There's a lot of uh, discussion about evacuation of energy of the oil sands from Alberta and Saskatchewan and stuff like that. And so in a conversation, I asked them that, <clears throat> what's your end goal? Your end goal is to monetize that availability of energy. Why not think about monetizing it without evacuating it? And so, so how? So I said, talk to people like Elon Musk. Talk, I mean, think about a battery grid. Yeah, that he's trying to off-grid uh, systems. We don't know what's going to come up, you know. And the, the the biggest danger I would say for the world is to look at prescriptions for the future. You have to adapt, be flexible, look at opportunities, flip-flop. Uh, and 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 the the biggest changes in the world never intended to be the change that we had. The and, and the changes that never, do come, they come at a pace that you, you can't even yeah. imagine, right? Did anybody who worked on the internet project or the GPS project thought that it would be used for the stuff that it is being used now? Yeah. So there's a, there's a great uh, unknown there and we must respect that unknown. No, and I think the, the, from an emerging economy perspective, it, it is such a huge opportunity, right? Because all of a sudden, I mean, South Asia, for example, will be supremely exposed to climate change. It's emerging middle class will need energy to consume. They aspire to own yeah. automobiles, for example. And if you can reimagine and retool that society to be creative about how they, what their aspirations are and how they want to function in a world where climate change is around the corner, you can not only stay, you know, push back the impact of climate change, but actually leapfrog ahead, right? And transform your society into something that maybe others may not be able to do because they have such, as you said, they're paved economies. They are incumbents that will be slow to shift because the rent seekers will push them or hold them back. We're seeing this in the United States, for example, as well. Um, and that's the real opportunity where if you have the autonomous electric vehicle, then all of a sudden you can prevent 
cities like New Delhi or Lahore or Dhaka from becoming these smog centrals um, that are there primarily because of the number of cars on the road. And no, and, we need to and change that. Also, greater greater inclusion in the economy, in in, in yep. the opportunities of the economy. So, a I think uh, emerging economies are far too rigidly locked into uh, the idea of a future that lives in the past, yep. which is basically high capital growth, urbanization, mass rapid transport. You know, you 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 try to replicate a Tokyo or a Seoul in Lahore or a Mumbai or Dhaka, it's going to be a disaster. There's no question about it. So you have to rethink this. I mean, why shouldn't a person in Bihar or in uh, Abbottabad be able to participate in a global technology project? Yeah. You can. I mean, you know, so do, do you need people to move? You don't need, you know, so uh, a, a localization and regionalization of the supply chain could also mean induction of 3D and other technologies in these emerging economies so you don't become that import dependent on capital goods for capital for technology and again it comes back to the idea of reimagining your economy differently from what so the human condition is such that we always want so what what's the question that people are talking about now in the pandemic when we will be returned to normal yeah they want to go back to a normal that normal is never going to come back so you got to think of an, what's the new normal what's where where are we going to be and, and i so think many people won't want to go back to the old normal where they were commuting 2 hours a day to go to an office and sit there for 8 absolutely. hours and then commute absolutely. back they don't want that Absolutely. And look at the other aspect here. And this is, this is a gender issue that I sort of flag every time wherever I can. Uh, so in the less developed economies of the world, the workforce participation of women is pathetically low. And that's because of various social, cultural, and other conditions. If work for home happens, governments could actually find talent sitting at home to work in their governance system. So the, you, you have to rethink from uh, capital intensive, I mean, so all of regimes across uh, emerging economies have constantly thought of the cost of modernization and whatever their definition of modernization is. I think that those textbooks need to be just junked. You've got to think about these issues very differently uh, and this is a conversation that i would say is just about beginning now uh, and even now people tend to look at what's happening in autonomous cars as just about cars it's, not it's much about more cars. much much more than that it, it, it is a life generation world changing thing that's happening out there if a Chinese company can go to the Middle East in UAE and set up an 18-story building or a 12-story building in like 72 hours or a week, you've got to rethink what you're doing with your 
capital with your resources and what's what's possible uh, in the future uh, and for emerging economies i would say that because there is so little legacy baggage to shift from it's a huge opportunity you have the demography on your side and you have the human capital you have the ability to sort of recast your economy a little more easily than say a germany which is export dependent or a us which is global finance and services dependent uh, or latin america which is commodity dependent or australia which has had a great run for 20 years but i don't know whether i mean whether those uh, the levels of commodity exports that they did with probably uh, happen or china which was the factory to the world whether uh, people are going to consume that many things and that much stuff so this it's a, it's a huge opportunity and again we come back to crisis you know crisis makes you introspect reflect you know and uh, the question is that uh, who are the champions in the emerging world who can rethink this idea and you're right when you said that people tend to think about the authoritarian idea they want another singapore they want another china they want another seoul and this is this is just the wrong way to go about it yeah yeah you can't supplant that psyche into this society or that efficiency or that discipline into uh, what is a multicultural uh, democratic uh, society so uh, th- this and to come back to the thing is that it will all depend on what's the blue sky cap- capacity uh, blue sky thinking capacity in countries uh, i mean it's a fascinating time again no, very fascinating i think i think blue sky is definitely i would just say it's it's blue sky plus a desire to not shy away from failures right because mm-hmm. you will certain things may or may not work but that is going to be the trial and error method and as you said you have to be agile you have to move and pivot quickly um and not be beholden to the past and I mean, be willing look, to disrupt and so, change so people need to sort of look back even just 10 years back okay yahoo was the principal search engine google started as a mail server yeah facebook was never intended to be facebook i think about that yeah. i mean apple wanted to produce computers Amazon was a bookstore that's it yeah it's a bookstore and now AWS is the most profitable part profitable of the company so you, you you just think that you know you 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 should not be rigid you have to think expansively and sort of uh, so my my title for the future would be the shape of water <laughs> you got to follow follow where it finds its level finds its gravity finds its Uh, translucent you know utility i think and that, that's where we are headed i think is that well on that note thank you so much for your time this has been a fascinating discussion i know we covered a lot of ground starting from india's liberalization to the future and how can emerging economies like india bangladesh pakistan and others can think about what's around the corner so really appreciate your insights um your book accidental india was fascinating i'm looking forward to reading the gated republic it's on my list so wish you the best um stay safe in canada and we'll be in touch thank you thank you sir and it's been a pleasure talking to you and i hope there are more conversations uh across domains to think 
what could be the future. Like thank you. Thank you.